morning. Please have a look at that with me. We have a little bit of a vocabulary lesson for us today. So if you can kind of read along with me, if not, just give a listen. Air conditioning. Sugar. Artificial sweeteners. Silk. Remote controls. Lazy boy recliners. Hired servants. Hot water heaters. Charmin toilet paper. You're really trying to figure out where this is going, aren't you? (laughs) Nike tennis shoes. Pillow top mattresses. Heated car seats. Sunglasses. Riding lawnmowers. Escalators. Pain medication. Now, what do all of these things have in common? Well, they, they represent our appetite for comfort and our disdain for discomfort. Let's face it, as a people, we don't like to be uncomfortable in really any category of our lives. And the moment we start figuring out something is going to be uncomfortable is the moment we're looking to make some adjustments. We want to make some changes. Webster defines comfortable as providing comfort or ease, at ease in body or mind. Comfortable implies, listen, the absence of disturbing, painful, or distressing features. In a positive sense, it stresses ease, contentment, and freedom from care. But that phrase, the absence of disturbing, painful, or distressing features, I mean, let's face it, when you and I go to make decisions on a daily basis... If in this category is any of those features, something disturbing, something painful, or something distressing, we are immediately trying to figure out how to go around that. If it's something as nominal as a traffic jam, or it's something as challenging as yard work, we are wanting to figure out how can I steer clear of that. That's definitely not what I want in my life. And we're seeking things that are safe, predictable, familiar, to us. Things that bring immediate reward, a greater sense of immediate gratification. We don't want to delay anything in our life. We want immediate efficiency in choices that we've made. And there's a concern that I would have that many of us in this comfortable culture that we live in, we're, we're making life choices based on the priority of obtaining comfort and avoiding discomfort at all costs. Let's face it, if this morning you had gotten an email notice yesterday saying the air conditioning in the building is out at First Assembly, how many of us would really be here? And we'd have to be sitting in an unair conditioned building. Now, would any of us really die? I mean, the odds are pretty high that none of us would die from that, but it would be uncomfortable. And discomfort would be enough for most of us to say, well, you know, it won't hurt for me to miss one week. Because at all costs, discomfort is to be avoided. Now, an interesting irony in the world in which we live. The discomfort that some people avoid is the very thing that some people pursue. You just need to have the right reasons to pursue it. You remember the post-Katrina world that we have been living in, especially the first six months to a year after Katrina, There were a huge number of folks that had to relocate out of the city 
and found themselves jobless, could not find employment all over this country, and yet there was all kinds of work that needed to be done here. Do you remember? It was just a, a rush on getting people to do work, from tearing out, gutting houses. I mean, it, it was dirty work. It was sweaty, grimy work. And, and if you were going to do the work and live here, you probably were going to have to live in less than ideal accommodations, bunking in with others, living with other families perhaps, uh, many, too many people in a hotel room. Well, while some people at all costs avoided that scenario, there was a large segment of people from Mexico who were attracted to that very setting. I remember talking to Dean. Dean Adamek is the fellow who runs the orphanage that we are connected to in Mexico. And Dean was telling me the buzz about New Orleans in Mexico. I mean, this, people were salivating. There's, there was opportunity there way into the interior of Mexico. People were trying to figure out how can we get there. The very thing trying to be avoided by folks here was tra- seeking to be run to by people that were there. So it's a strange irony. Some of us and I would be in this category, would be one seeking to avoid physical exertion and sweat. I mean, I understand sweat is necessary, some element that cools the body. I I just, I'm I'm not moving toward that thing, you know? If you can can get in low humidity, that's, that's the ideal thing. Find where you don't have to sweat. But yet there are some folks, and there's some of you here who are this way, can't figure you out, but there are some who are here, who seek physical exertion and sweat that's a priority for you 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 have terminologies like it was a good workout those terms don't fit together there's not a whole lot good about working out you know but for you it was a good workout i mean you're sweating your muscles are aching you know you rode too far on a bike you're like an olympic athlete olympic athletes run toward the very thing that some of us are seeking to avoid Public speaking. Public speaking is, for the most part, avoided by every person on the planet. It's the most miserable thing you can be asked to do. As a matter of fact, it is the number one fear of humanity, public speaking. People people would rather, literally, they'd rather die than speak publicly. They're less afraid of dying. And so you have some folks who avoid that discomfort at all costs, and you have other people who seek it out at all costs. And yet, well, many of us who avoided it at one point at all costs, only to then later seek it out at all costs later on. What we do with this issue of comfort and discomfort is very much determined by what we've labeled life to be. We're walking through a series that we've been teaching through a number of weeks here. Um, The life we were meant to live. Some of us will travel through incredible amounts of discomfort because we think on the other side of that discomfort there's life. Why did all those folks travel from central Mexico to come up and live in New Orleans in overcrowded sleeping quarters in a moldy, stinky environment because of the opportunity for life that they had determined was here. They were going to be able to come up here and make some serious money to care for their families and further what their definition of life was. 
Why do Olympic athletes put themselves in this training regimen and restrict their lives and go through all the discomfort of not living the normal life that other people are living and they restrain their diets and eat a certain way and take huge portions of their lives, four and six and eight years sometimes, and dedicate it to one thing and say no to all kinds of other stuff. Why do they do that? Because for them, competing in the Olympics, that's life. They're willing to travel through a huge amount of discomfort to get there. Why do people stand in front of others? Why does a preacher, which I don't know too many preachers who didn't have to go through a huge amount of discomfort before they ever got comfortable standing in front of a group of people. Why do that? Because the belief that right now in this auditorium, life is happening. I'm convinced. I know. And listen, this was a, this is the most, for me, it was the most terrifying thing that I could have ever done in my life. If you'd ask me at some point, don't you want to stand in front of a big audience of people and let them all just be waiting to see what you're going to say next? <laughs> no. Never wanted to do that. But I got convinced that this is life. And life is being imparted. And God joins with the foolishness of words coming out of some guy's mouth and touches people's lives. And forever their life is changed. Well, there's life on the other side of that discomfort. It's almost as though we, we live our lives, we could get a terrain map here, we live in this, this plateau, this land of, of comfort, whatever it is, it's some fleshly comfort that we've found for our lives. And just on the edge of that land, there's this valley that goes and it becomes narrow and dark. And what we've heard is on the other side of that valley, there's these rich, lavish lands of promise. Much, much greater than where we are right here. But the problem is you've got to go through the valley to get there. And one of the things that we want to lay hold of here is there is a life that we were meant to live. God sends his son to come and restore life. Remember Jesus said that. I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. An incredible, wonderful life. But to get there, you're going to have to travel through this darkened corridor, this valley of discomfort in order to have the life you were meant to have by God. And that's true whether you're here today and you have some vague thoughts about God, about His involvement in your life. You're not real religious, but you, you entertain some ideas. Listen, for you to have the life God meant you to have, you're going to have to pass through a valley of discomfort to get it. And if you're a believer here today, you've been walking with Christ for many years, the abundance of the life that you've been given by Christ, the only way you're going to lay hold of it is to walk, determined to walk through the valley of discomfort in your life. And if, if my goal in life today is to only do the things that are comfortable for me at this point in my life, and to at all costs avoid the things that are uncomfortable, well then, I'm going to get robbed of the life that I was meant to live. What I was supposed to have, I'm not going to get to experience. Listen to this thought from John Piper. He says, when God ceases to be the treasure of your heart, more than likely your heart will fasten itself on the pleasures and comforts of this life. And unless God graciously intervenes, your addiction to comfort will make you indifferent to honesty and harden against 
the poor. Now, I would expand his thought there into other categories. I think simply your addiction to comfort will make you indifferent to a lot of things. If you're in love with comfort, you're addicted to it. I mean, you can sit here today and say, you know what? Uh, I don't have the best financial situation going on, but, you know, I've learned to live with it. I can, I, I can live with it. And you're addicted to the comfort to the degree that you're not willing to go through the difficulty of passing through the valley of challenge and discomfort in order to get into a better place, well, then you're just indifferent to that. You'll stay right where you are. Oh, uh, your marriage, uh, you know, it's not horrible, but it's far from great. But, you know, we've been married a long time, and, and we kind of are what we are. And, um, you know, trying to reinvent this thing at this point in our lives, you know, making issues out of stuff that we've just chosen to blow off, uh, you know, uh, so you become indifferent about these things. And you just leave them alone. And God says, no, there's, there's an abundant life that I want you to have. But if you won't move from here, if you're addicted to comfort, you're never going to have it. Piper goes on and says, listen to Amos slam at the lovers of comfort in Amos 6.1. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. And to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria. Verse 4. Woe to those who lie upon beds of ivory and stretch themselves upon their couches. Verse 6. Who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Does that refer to anyone today? People who live for comfort and do not grieve over the lost? People who are experts in loving themselves, but have not thought the first thought about what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. What governs your getting and spending? Is it the desire to fill your little free score in ten with as much comfort as you can? Or is it the God-given desire to do as much good for others as you can to the glory of Christ? Take heed and guard your hearts diligently lest you find yourselves enslaved to comfort and addicted to luxury. Oh, those, are, those are wise words for anyone who's going to draw in the air available on American soil to be very careful that we don't become addicted to comfort and luxury and want to avoid discomfort, often discomfort that is going to lead us into abundance and the fulfilling of God's promises. Well, this series we have been studying, we have been taking from the book of Acts example and being provoked by the lives that were being lived in this book preserved for us in Scripture. Jesus makes all these promises in the Gospels to his followers, promises of abundance in their lives. And then in the book of Acts, these guys receive the, the most important promise that's made to them is the coming of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Jesus spoke about it over and over and over again. The promise of the Father. When the promise of the Father comes, the toolbox is full. And now living the life of abundance is available to them. And they begin to live this life. And we can take some lessons by observing them live this life. But what I want to highlight today is in this area of comfort and discomfort. While these folks were living abundant lives, they were not necessarily living 
comfortable lives. There was much about their lives that was not comfortable. Turn open to Acts chapter 2. And we're just going to do a little bit of a survey today of several examples in the book of Acts of the life that they lived that was accompanied by discomfort. The heading in this section in your notes says, Discomforts Encountered on the Way to Living the Life We Were Meant to Live. There will be discomfort. Here's some examples, and there's much more than the ones that we'll highlight today. First, and this is a big one, the discomfort of changing your belief system. Don't, don't, you, don't you ever get to that place in your life where, where just, you know, more information just confuses you? Right? you you've kind of, you finally figured out, you haven't really figured it out, but you figured it out to your own liking how to work this gadget, how to explain this thing. And then somebody comes along who really knows how to use it, and they begin to explain it to you. And they, they come at it from such an angle that you just end up, you, you're getting more and more confused the more they talk. And you just want to turn on and say, no, just, just stop talking, stop talking. I don't want to hear anymore. It's like, I've got, I've got this figured out. Even though we know it doesn't work, but I've got it figured out. Don't give me any more information. Well, sometimes, you know, religion, especially for folks, we can move ourselves to where we collect just enough pieces of information about religion to sort out some ground to stand on. I mean, it, it might be an island a little bit bigger than a pencil head, but we have, this is the ground we have to stand on in the realm of religion. This is all we know. Don't, don't tell me anything. Don't challenge my views on anything. We don't like the discomfort of having to entertain information, listen, that might tell me I'm wrong. We don't like that about anything, by the way, but we definitely don't like it in the realm of religion. And there's a great lesson to be learned here in the second chapter of Acts. We pick up this, and I want to just highlight a couple of elements here. The second chapter of Acts is the, the setting is Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. And there is a huge crowd of people that have gathered in Jerusalem. There's a Jewish festival taking place there that drew people from all over the world to come to Jerusalem and celebrate this great religious festival. This wasn't Mardi Gras. Well, it wasn't Mardi Gras. There would be some related similarities here. It wasn't Jazz Fest, right? Uh, it wasn't the Decadence Festival by any means. These folks weren't coming to Jerusalem for those sorts of reasons. This was a religious festival. These people were religious, and they were in Jerusalem for religious reasons. Listen to what it says in Acts 2. Verse 5, it says, Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. Remember, there was a sound that took place. There was a gathering of disciples in an upper room in one of the buildings. And God comes in a miraculous way into this particular day. And he shows up and, and literally there's external noise and there's miraculous events that take place. And this rushing sound of wind begins to blow through the building. And this noise occurs and then these, these pieces of fire descend on people's heads. And God is communicating something in physical form. And they begin to have these utterances and they begin to speak. But they all start speaking different languages and they walk out into the streets that day. And here's this multitude of people who have come from thousands of miles away who are all gathered in the streets of Jerusalem. And out of this place where this noise has all of a sudden started to occur comes a bunch of people who are all speaking in other languages 
But these guys are hearing their home language being spoken. From all over the world, these people who are from here in Jerusalem are speaking these other languages. And then the Apostle Peter stands up in the midst of this noisy gathering, and all this multitude is here, and he explains what you just saw, this phenomenon that you just saw. He pulls an explanation from the prophet Joel. He says, this is the prophecy that God gave to Joel, that this would happen. There would come a day when God would pour out his spirit on mankind. This is explainable. Don't freak out over this. Well, they they were trying to figure out what it was. And you can imagine the door gets thrust open and onto the street comes a bunch of people. They're all speaking loud and they're they're looking like they're real enthusiastic. These people aren't, they they don't look terrified. They're not like, walking out of the street freaking. This is God doing something in their life. So there's enthusiasm. They walk out on the street and they're speaking in other languages. And then people are trying to figure out what on earth is, is that a saloon? What, what just happened in here? Are these people drunk? Well, Peter says, no, this is completely explainable. Now, remember, on the street that day, our people gathered for a religious festival. They should have known what Joel had said. Joel was, a, was an Old Testament prophet. They should have been looking for this. But they were religious, but they weren't quite informed as they should have been. And Peter explains, here's what's happening. This is what Joel talked about. When he's done explaining the event that Joel has prophesied about and why these manifestations, he moves now to begin to preach the gospel to them. He has a captive audience now. This, this amazing event has drawn everybody's attention. And there's a huge crowd. And Peter begins to preach to this crowd. And let me just skip towards the end here. Verse 37. After he's preached, and he's clarified, who is this Jesus Christ? He gets to verse 37 in Acts 2. He says, now, when they heard this, this about who Jesus was, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, put yourself in this climate for a moment. Remember, remember who the audience is here? The audience is the folks that were in chapter 2, verse 5. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men. These were devout individuals. These were religious and reverent people. These were individuals who were attending a religious festival at their own expense and have traveled a thousand miles, two thousand miles. They didn't just jump in their car and drive. It was a huge amount of effort for you to travel that kind of distance in this day. But their devotion to their religion leads them to Jerusalem and they are devoted to being in that setting. And not only that, These devout men now are going to hear a message 
And they're going to be asked to respond. These devout religious individuals hear a guy stand up and speak to them and tell them they need to repent. You folks need to repent. And you need to acquire forgiveness from God. Now, how many of you think that was an easy and comfortable thing for those folks to hear? Can you imagine being in that audience and listening to that? You're being told you're wrong. If you have to repent, whatever you're doing, you're doing the wrong thing. So if you're being told repent, you are being told you are wrong. And then these guys are going to turn around and they're actually going to receive what was said. How amazing is that? I mean, can, we, can we put ourselves in this position? Let's, let's imagine in the audience, there's a, there's a 65-year-old man who's been living his whole life as a religious man. He's, he, he believes in God. He's come to Jerusalem because of his devotion. He's a devout man. And he's hearing a message telling him, you're wrong. And you need to repent and put your trust and your hope in something else than what you have been believing in. Is this a comfortable moment for this guy? This promise that he's just talking about from Joel and the promises for you and for all whom the Lord God will call to himself. This great promise, right? Can you imagine? Here, Traveling back from the land of promise through the valley of discomfort comes Peter, standing in a big, huge crowd in a land where people are comfortable. They're comfortable with their religion. They, they understand it. It works for them. They go on pilgrimage. They do some good things. They honor God a certain way. They've figured that out. And into their life comes this guy who says, over there is real abundant life. But you're going to have to travel through this discomfortable zone of repentance and receiving forgiveness. Now, in this moment, this particular 65-year-old man, or whoever in the crowd, has got to be thinking, what do you mean I need to repent? What do you mean I need to receive forgiveness? I'm a, I'm a religious man. I'm devout. I'm devoted to God. What do you mean I need to, I need to receive forgiveness? I'm not right with God. What are you trying to say? It's, listen, it's very, very difficult to convince a good religious person that they need to repent. It's very, very difficult. You want to know the only reason why this could occur? If you don't remove Acts chapter 2 from its full context, what happens in Acts chapter 2 is the Spirit of God is on the scene in an amazing way. And when they say in verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Their heart was affected. Something deep down inside of them told them, that's right. What must we do? All of a sudden now they're volunteering for something very, very uncomfortable. Listen, you and I can't get past this point because in some ways... We live in a culture in New Orleans that has some similarities here. We live in, a, in a, a culture that has understood itself 
say that carefully because I don't actually think it practices it very much at all. But it's understood itself to be a moral and religious culture. Right? I mean, the football team is called the New Orleans Saints. You know how long it took me in life to figure out that Saints wasn't a football team? Do you know how long it took me to get that growing up here in New Orleans? I mean, forever, I thought, if you said the Saints, immediately, black and gold, you know, symbols on helmets, football game going on. It took me a long I didn't even know it was in the Bible. You know the word Saints is in the Bible? I'm thinking, the football team's in the Bible? <laughs> what is that? Uh, there's plays in here too, or what? I had no idea what that was, what that was about. And you drive around New Orleans and you drive from St. Bernard Parish, St. Bernard Parish, to St. Charles Avenue, to St. James Parish, and St. John Parish, and St. Tammany Parish. Can you get the idea that we're a religious place to be? You know, this is religious around here. Do you know how difficult it is to tell a religious person that they need to repent and get forgiveness? I don't understand. I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a religious person. That's exactly what these guys would have said. Now, you know, growing up here in New Orleans, I grew up a religious person. Now, one of the great dangers for me in, in looking at what the Bible said was the fact that, I, you know, I'm standing on a pencil head worth of information. I was. But I had accepted what I believed, and I hadn't questioned what I believed, and I really kind of didn't know why I believed what I believed. Because I just grew up in the culture. It's what my family did. It's what everybody else in New Orleans did. If you didn't go to Catholic school or Catholic church in New Orleans, you were weird. I mean, it took some getting used to whoever you... You go to church where? Oh, you don't go to church. Uh, it, was just, it was unusual in this culture to come across that. Listen to this thought from Oz Guinness. He says, Are you living an examined life? Or are you living in the hand-me-down ideas of others? Are you open to the full interrogation of life? Or are you closed to the search because you believe what you've always believed without questions? See, when you start asking questions about what you believe, unless you've got answers, it becomes very uncomfortable. And we are programmed to avoid discomfort. I don't want you asking me questions about what I believe because I didn't know why I was doing what I was doing. If you'd asked me as a young teenager, Keith, why do you do the sign of the cross when you drive in front of a church? Why do you do that? Uh, I don't really know why. <laughs> I just do. My uncle did it. I saw him do it. He would do it every time he passed in front of a church. So I started doing it, literally. Keith, why, why do you give up, this is me, why, why do you give up chewing gum for Lent, but you don't give up lying to your parents about the illegal drug use going on in your life as a young teenager? Can you explain that one to me? And I couldn't have. I didn't, I didn't see any disconnect. It's just something you did in life. It's what you had been around in life. R.C. Sproul says, Most ideas that shape our lives are accepted, at least initially, somewhat uncritically. We don't ask questions, and then when we kind of find a place to stand in a category of our life, we don't want to be asked any questions. The very first thing, if you want to live the life you were meant to live by God, the first thing you have to do is examine your own life. 
examine what you believe and find out why you believe it and be able to listen to the Apostle Peter stand in front of a religious group of devout individuals and say, you need to repent and be able to say, do I? Do I need to repent? Even though I've traveled all these miles to be at this religious festival and I've been doing it longer than you've been alive, little buddy. Do I need to consider repenting and receiving forgiveness from God? How easy was it for a Jew in this day to receive and believe in Christ? How difficult was this? Acts 2 verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now listen, this is, we, we can't quite get the context here of this. You know, they, they had a big problem with Jesus being from Nazareth. This is a big hurdle that many of them never overcame. You know, to listen to somebody say, wait, God has made him, that little boy from West Wego, God's made him. Lord and Christ. You understand this is a tough thing to swallow. Who is he? He's from those people who talk funny. He's not, he can't be intelligent. None of those people sound intelligent. They're from Nazareth, for goodness sake. This is a huge issue for them. And then you broaden it into words like, look in Acts chapter 4. You start saying things like this. Verse 12. There is salvation in no one else. But there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. How easy was that? How comfortable of a thought was that for a Jew to hear? This guy is the, and he's not only the Christ, and he's the Lord, boy, don't use that term, but he's the only way for anybody to be saved. Whoa, 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 time out. I've got a huge amount of allegiance in my heart to men like Abraham. And Moses, and you are messing with my traditions. See, a huge difficulty, a huge valley of discomfort for these individuals who were moral and religious was overcoming their own personal traditions. To repent and put their faith in Christ was going to mean abandoning the system that they had lived in in their lives. It was basically a system that dressed up good behavior and associated it with God. If we do good things, the God who we believe in, who is the biblical God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the problem wasn't in defining who God was. It was their definition of how to get to him. It was the system that they lived in and had been distorted on how to relate to God and be accepted by God. That was going to be a very difficult personal tradition for them to overcome and receive. So turn, just keep thumbing through Acts with me. Acts chapter 15. Get a little bit later here. And you're going to see this issue for these Jews to fully embrace the person and work of Christ. It was challenging. Acts 15 verse 1. But some men came down from Judea. And we're teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, this, this 
this spins an incredible controversy into the first century church that gets more fully addressed by the Apostle Paul in the book to the Galatians. His letter to the Galatians is because there is a gathering of people who now, they have not come along and said, this Jesus is a false prophet. He is not the Messiah, and you shouldn't believe in him. They have not done that. They have done something that the Apostle Paul feels is even more dangerous. They have said yes to Jesus the Messiah, and at the same time, yes to their own traditions and personal good practices. And they have brought them both in now, and they have made them both part of salvation. Well, sure, yeah, but you need to believe in Christ. Yeah, and the people that have been teaching that, that's absolutely right. But if you're going to be saved, then you also have to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses. In Galatians, I'll put in your outline there a couple of passages. Galatians chapter 2, Paul responds to this with great concern and consternation. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by Faith. Justified means to be made right with God. You are made right with God by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Why is he bringing this up to the Galatians? Because the issue before them was circumcision. The issue before them was, it's great if you believe in Christ. It's great if you believe he's the Savior. But you still need to do this in order to be saved and be right with God. Galatians chapter 5, verse 2, Paul says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Do you understand here? They're not trying to do away with Christ. They're just trying to add to him. He will become of no advantage to you. This is an interesting thing that he teaches here in this passage. And he teaches it in Romans. He teaches it elsewhere in the New Testament. That salvation is 100% the work and person of Jesus Christ. It is not 99% Jesus Christ and 1% me. It is not that. Look what he says next. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. See, Paul forces. You've got one of two choices here. You can either try to get to heaven based on your goodness... Or you can get to heaven completely based on his goodness. But you cannot try and marry the two of them together. You must choose one or the other. It must be completely the grace of God and the mercy of God that you receive by faith and he pours out on you. Or, if you begin to try and qualify yourself, even take one step to elevate yourself so that you can receive then the grace of God. Now, time out. That's illegal. You can't do that. Flag on the play, saints. For those of you who didn't know, saints were not football players. If you want to do the works thing, you have to do completely the works thing. So if you're going to put your foot on the ladder, you have to climb the whole way to heaven on your own. Of your own merit and your own doing. That's the law. Go ahead and do it. Anybody who looks seriously at that's going to figure out, I can't do it. I can try and get a couple of steps, but I can never do more than two or three in a row without falling short. You cannot marry these two together. They're separate. You are, in verse 4, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. 
For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Well, then, are you saying it doesn't matter whether you're circumcised or not? To be saved? That's exactly what he was saying. This is the great danger here. Let me take it out of the realm of, of Judaism and put it in our own backyard here. Are you, right now, in your view of how you relate to God and whether or not he accepts you today, at this moment in your life, are you adding anything to the work that Christ did in your belief system? Are you adding circumcision to it? That's what they had a problem with. Circumcision was the right, the passageway into becoming part of the nation of Israel. Are you adding circumcision? Are you adding good works? Well, you know, but I know what I need to do. I know, yeah, I know, I believe in Jesus. I believe he's my savior, but, you know, but I also think, you know, I need to do some things in order to be saved. Are you adding anything? Are you adding sacraments? Are you adding purgatory? In a conversation with somebody recently about purgatory. Are you adding purgatory? Well, how is purgatory a work? Purgatory is a belief that when you, tr- when you get out of this body, in this life, that there still is an issue of sin that remains associated with you, that must be dealt with. And that dealing with it involves you being in a setting where that sin can now be dealt with. Well, that becomes the work that you do, even if the work is a work of suffering. And it is something added to Christ. See, if you add anything to Christ, the Bible screams out and says, you've fallen from grace. You've removed yourself from the benefit. Christ will be of no value to you. Now listen, for these Jews, do you understand how hard it was for them to hear this? There was a huge amount of difficulty in saying, you mean I've been wrong? I believe in the importance of circumcision all my life. I've been wrong. I need to put my hope somewhere else in order to find forgiveness and be justified before God. Was that an easy thing for these folks to do? No. And it may not be an easy thing for many of us here today to do. But on the other side of that discomfort and wrestling with those thoughts, life is on the other side. Relationship with God is on the other side. Listen, these guys weren't the only ones, and I won't go through the details, but if you were to look through Acts chapter 10, you'd find the gospel goes from Peter preaching it to the Jews to now it's being preached to the Gentiles. Now it's being preached to those who are not religious, those who are outside of the practices of Judaism, and it's going to go to the, to the Romans and to the Greeks. It's going to go to the heathens. It's going to go to the party animals now. It's going to go from the people who were devout to the, to the people who were probably disgusting in many, many ways. And into their life is going to come a different type of difficulty to believe because they're going to go from a life of great pleasure. If you study the Roman culture, you study the Greek culture, these people loved to party. These were the original party animals. And so they loved to give themselves to pleasure, whether that pleasure was the pleasure of wine, you know, welcome to the gods of Bacchus and celebration and drunken revelry. We borrow that from the Greeks and the Romans. Uh, into what would be today just 
and modern forms of pornography everywhere. I mean, when you went to a worship service in a Greek temple, you were going to have sex. That's a little different than what's going on here. Back then, it was all about sensuality and pleasure. And then you get confronted with a gospel that's calling you to put your faith and your hope in Jesus Christ, who says something about those behaviors. That's a little bit awkward. That's a little bit uncomfortable. Yeah, I'm I'm not going to get to keep practicing these things. I mean, I really kind of like some of this stuff, you know. Well, not if you're going to follow Christ. You're not going to follow him into that. So it's a little, little bit uncomfortable to come to Christ on his terms. But if you're going to live the life you were meant to live, the first uncomfortable thing you must do is re-examine your life and embrace repentance in receiving the gospel. You may have to do the difficult thing of admitting, I could be wrong. And that's not easy for any of us. Let me hit a couple other discomfort zones here. How about the discomfort of receiving the Lordship of Christ? When we, when we encounter God in the New Testament, we encounter Him under this word, curious. I read it to you. That all the nation of Israel, the house of Israel, know that He has made Him Lord and Christ. This word Lord in the New Testament is the Greek word curios, and it means boss, owner, master. That's how that word was, was used. So look in these passages here. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. The very concept of Jesus being Lord is that he has moved from being a religious figure with some nice ideas to being your personal owner. Now, I don't know that I want an owner. I'd like to be the owner. Most of us want to own our own life. It's a huge challenge to give away ownership of our lives. We want to do things our way. We want to have the attitudes we want to have. We don't want to have somebody coming in and telling us, "Uh, uh, uh, that's not what I want for your life. What do you mean? It's what I've wanted all my life. And I want this for you. Her? I don't want her. this This is how we want to run things. It's a very, very uncomfortable thing to give away the keys to somebody else and say, it's yours. What do you want me to do now? Was that easy? Not at all. Romans 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's interesting, it doesn't even say to confess with your mouth Jesus is Savior. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Messiah. If you personally confess with your mouth Jesus is your Lord, he's your boss. Quite often when I meet with folks personally for counseling and, and there's an issue of salvation, a question mark about whether they're really saved, kind of the thought process I will lead them through is more about the ownership of their life than anything else. It's about coming to the point where you will take the, the deed, the ownership deed of your life. Remember you do this when you, when you have a car and you sell it to somebody else and you sign it over to them. You, know, you flip that thing over and there's a space for you to sign and then they sign, and the car isn't yours anymore. 
And that guy takes the keys from you and he rightfully owns that thing and he gets in the car and he drives away. And he can go paint it pink. He can go ram it into a telephone pole. He can strip it down for parts. And all you can do is stand and watch. Because that ain't your car anymore. And when we come to Christ, that's how we come. We come, and he asks for the deed, and he puts it on the table in front of us. And he says, you know, Keith, I appreciate that you like a lot about me. I appreciate that. I appreciate that you're convinced that I could really help you out if you get in a jam. Yeah, you've proven that even when you didn't follow me. You'd at least call me when you were in an emergency. I used to actually, I was a, a young criminal before coming to Christ as a teenager. And, and I had the nerve to ask God to get me out of things if the police were about to catch me. I, I would call on God in that moment. I'd make deals. I'd promise to never do it again. I mean, I'd, and I'd break that eventually. But we might like a lot of things about God. But he's not looking necessarily to be liked by us. He's looking to be Lord. So he wants me to take that, Keith. That's great. You've got a lot of nice things to say about me. I appreciate that. Let's go back to the document here. Are you willing to sign right there? And I'm going to sign right here. And I will now be the master. I'll be Lord. Are you willing to do that? What does that mean, be Lord? Well, it means be Lord. It means I'm boss every day, all the time. I'm in control. I'm the man. Every day? I mean, do I get weekends off, anything? No. No, not at all. <laughs> not a moment. You don't understand, Keith. You, can, you can't get, quite get this right now, but if I gave you five minutes, you'd screw things up so quickly. I, I'm not willing to even let you have five minutes. I love you too much. I know what you'd do with yourself if I gave you back to you. So if you want to be mine, you need to be completely mine. Are you willing to do that? A lot of folks aren't willing for that to be the exchange, but that's Christianity. And that ain't easy. But that's step number one to coming into the abundant life. When you look at these guys in the book of Acts, and they did that, you find them amazingly in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 4. They're, they're taking stuff that belongs to them. They're taking their belongings and their property, and they're selling the stuff off. Right? You remember these stories? Go back real quick. Acts chapter 2. Verse 43. Awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They were liquidating themselves in order to help other people. Acts chapter 4. Towards the end of the chapter. Verse 33. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And great grace was upon them all. There were not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold. How easy do you think that was? How comfortable was it for you to take the assets that had taken you years to accumulate? Family inheritance, your retirement. How comfortable was it to take that stuff and sell it and give it all away? most of us would run and steer away from that in a heartbeat. But yet these people steered toward it because they got convinced on the other side of this valley is abundant life. Listen, what a, what a wonderful abundance. The day you can get free from the stuff that you own. I, I want more of that in my life. God, I want to be free from the stuff I own. I don't want it owning me. 
I don't want it telling me it holds my future, it holds good, it holds joy, it holds promise. I don't want my stuff to ever have that kind of voice in my life. Well, the way you do that is to be able to get rid of it. Be free to not have it. Jesus taught weird principles. You know, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it abides alone. But if it dies, then it brings forth fruit. Well, wait, well, so I've got to pass through death before a big abundance shows up in my life? Yes, exactly. But see, we stand in this land of comfort and we say, okay, I've got one grain, that's all I got, and I'm not willing to not have that one grain. At least I got one grain. And we stand right here and there's that little valley. And on the other side of it, we heard there's a great deal of abundance of living over there. But we're not willing to let that little thing die in our lives. It could be our money. I, you know, I got this much money, I'm comfortable with it. I, I'm not willing to let this thing be separated from me. I'm not willing to give this. I'm not willing to tithe. I'm not willing to give it as an offering. I'm not willing to be generous to other people. See, this is, this is my grain of, of wheat in my life. God comes along and says, you know, if you let that thing die, I'll reproduce it in your life in such abundance that you won't even know what to do with it all. See, the pathway that leads to abundance goes through a, an element of discomfort and death so that we can have that, the abundant life God promised us that we could have. Quick thoughts on these other two points. Discomfort is stepping out into ministry. You can go back and look at these verses. Let me just tell you for a moment. You remember this great gathering of religious individuals has taken place in Jerusalem. And in the list in Acts chapter 2, we find out there's some men there who've come from a region of the world called Cyrene. Cyrene is, is where modern Libya would be in the northern part of Africa. It's probably 1,500 miles they've traveled up and around the Mediterranean coast to be in Jerusalem for this festival. And there are these devout men that are there. Now, we're going to learn something about these devout men who, who heard a message and were pierced in their heart and faith jumps forward and they do the difficult thing of reaching out and saying, I will repent and I will believe the gospel. And God comes flooding into their lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we hear about them again in Acts chapter 11. Verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, Men of Cyrene, the same men mentioned in Acts chapter 2, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now let me ask you, how comfortable do you think it was for these guys who had gotten used to religiously traveling to Jerusalem to celebrate a festival, I guarantee you they never preached in that festival. They encounter Christ, and just a short time after that, they are well north of where they live. Now they're probably 1,800 miles, 1,900 miles away from where they live, and they're standing in a town called Antioch, and they are preaching the gospel. Now, read the Bible like these are real people. Do you think the first time these men stood up, I don't know, maybe this is one of those 65-year-old men who had to come to grips with the life that he had lived and how to get right with God. And all of a sudden, God gets a hold of him. And he is standing now, like he saw the Apostle Peter do, with a crowd in Antioch. 
And he's preaching the gospel to them. Now, does anybody actually sit here and think that guy didn't have to swallow his tongue five times to get in front of those people? Anybody think there wasn't any personal fear for him to overcome? Wasn't any challenge for him to step out in a realm of ministry that he'd probably never done in his life? But there he is, having traveled through discomfort, standing and preaching the gospel. And when the hand of the Lord gets upon him and favors upon his life and people begin to get saved, what do you think this guy feels like in that moment? Oh, he feels the joy of heaven all over his life. He feels an abundance. And I bet you in that moment, he's very glad he didn't stay in the land of comfort and say, no, no you preach. No. You don't understand. I'm not real good with crowds and I, I'd be scared to death. You know, you do that. He's traveled through discomfort. Now he is experiencing abundant life and he is so glad. But the road to get there was not a comfortable road. It was not an easy road. There was just, there's discomfort all over this book for these folks who are in the first century. They changed jobs. They changed home locations. They changed financial categories. Some of these folks sold things and left home and went to live in different places where they had no jobs and had to start all over again. And they went from prominent individuals in a particular part of the world to Joe Nobody who had to ask around for a job somewhere else. Does anybody here think that was comfortable to do? It was not. But they were living an abundant life. The life we were meant to live. And let me give you a few thoughts here to close with this morning. And you can get ready to come on back. Your last little headline says, In what ways is God calling you to embrace discomfort in order to live the life you were meant to live? Right now, you think in your life, what, what are the categories of discomfort that I am steering around with everything in me? There is no way I'm going to do that. It's the very thing I'm avoiding that perhaps God says, no, I want you to go right through that. I want you to embrace the discomfort of doing that so that you can have the life I meant for you to have. Right, there's some folks here, some singles here, particularly perhaps older singles, who may need to consider embracing the discomfort of a courtship. Can I tell you, courtships done right are full of discomfort. No matter how they end up. Because, by the way, courtships don't always end in the answer being yes. Sometimes courtships end in the answer being no. And that was a successful courtship. You sought to discover the will of God. You sought to do it intentionally with impurity and communicate and be wise in how you walked out of a relationship. You didn't know whether the two of you should pursue marriage together. But you wanted to investigate that. Are you willing to take the risk, the discomfort, that the answer you're going to find out at the end of that thing is no? It's not the will of God for you. Or maybe worse, the answer is yes. <laughs> and it is the will of God for you. Which could be a whole different level of discomfort, especially if you're here and you're an older single. And one of the things that we are careful about for older singles seeking to get married is you've got a lot of years of doing it your own way, singleness has bred in you a certain view of convenience and inconvenience. And, and you strap another person to you when you're older and you're used to doing it your own way. You have a whole other set of discomfort about to come into your life. But it could be the very discomfort that leads into the abundance God wants for you. Relationally, 
Are you here this morning needing as a parent to embrace the discomfort of actually parenting? The discomfort of confronting your children. The discomfort of telling them no. No, we're not going to do that. See, a lot of us as parents, we, 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 we want peace too much. We want peace so bad that we're not willing to introduce that thing that's going to create pouting, whining, complaining, uh, the withdrawal of affection. Your son or your daughter doesn't want to talk with you because you moved from popular to enemy number one. Because you did the right thing in their life. You stepped into a situation and you brought wisdom that they didn't want and they don't like. See, some of us don't. We steer around. We love comfort, right? We don't want to get out of the air conditioning of the relationship going well. Keep us cool. Keep us cool. What do I need to do to keep us cool? You're letting me know. You're sending me signals. You're pouting and you're whining and your eyebrows are telling me what is permissible for me to do as a parent if I want to stay in the air conditioning with you. Well, I may need to embrace abundant living by doing what's uncomfortable. Husbands and wives sometimes need to do some uncomfortable things in order to have the marriage God intended you to have. Husbands, husbands need to sometimes lead in ways that are uncomfortable in your home. Listen, gentlemen, lead and not just tweak your wife's natural momentum. Your wife has lots of natural momentum. Part of it's just that she's wired differently, perhaps is quicker than you are, thinks in categories differently than you do, and, and, and part of that's the fall, and she wants to seize the steering wheel and yank it out of your hands. And a lot of times men think they're leading when they say, uh, just adjust the steering wheel every once in a while. Did you notice that? Don't want to turn it too far because she might pout. It's not as the wives don't pout, too. You can change the air conditioning in that setting, too. It can become way too cold, if you understand what I mean. (laughs) But yet, you may need to embrace discomfort in order to lead your wife into the abundance that she was meant to have and you were meant to have as a couple. Wives, you may need to embrace submitting to your husbands in ways that are not comfortable. Listen, you let your husband make four knucklehead decisions in a row and see how easy and comfortable it is to let him keep driving. Your tendency is to want to bury your heel on the side of his head and while he's in pain and blood is flowing, to yank the steering wheel out of his hand and steer it into a different place. Rather than embracing 1 Peter chapter 3, wives, be submitted to your husbands so that even if he is disobedient to the word. He may be one without a word as he observes your chaste and respectful behavior. Listen, it is very uncomfortable, not a wife, but I know it's uncomfortable for my wife, to submit when my wife doesn't respect what I'm doing. Now, she may not respect it because it needs to change in me, or she may not respect it because it's just different than how she'd have done it. But it's very difficult but you need to embrace discomfort. Listen, there's a list there, and I don't want to take time to go through all of them. But let's stand together this morning.
And let's invite the Holy Spirit into the categories of our lives where He can shine some light on what is it in your life right now that is uncomfortable for you to do. Maybe God's calling some of you to step out in realms of ministry, to be more evangelistic and to share your faith and your life with other people. And there's just discomfort in doing that. Maybe some of you have been asked by a covenant group leader, hey, could you fill in for me on occasion? And part of you says, not on your life. I'm not going to have 20 sets of eyeballs staring at me, waiting for me to say something else. I'm not doing it. Listen, on the other side of those discomforts, is an abundance of life. Is joy in you walking in obedience to God. Is God meeting you and meeting others and you being a part of that in all these categories. Let's, let's not miss the life we were meant to live because we have to pass through some uncomfortable places to get there. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for awareness and promise that there is a place of abundance for us. Mm. Lord, thank you for letting us know that there's a place of joy. There's a life of hope. There's peace. Thank you for intending and insisting that that life come to pass in our lives. But Lord, we bring a problem to receiving that life. And it is our love of comfort and our disdaining of anything uncomfortable and painful and stretching and challenging. Oh Lord, would you open our eyes to the way the kingdom operates this morning? Or would you let us see that just beyond the valley of discomfort, there is a vast land of abundance. God, give us grace to to be willing to give up the comfort we have right now and to lay hold of something much greater. I want you just to listen to the Lord for a moment. You can keep your eyes closed and just you and the Lord. If you're here this morning and you're perhaps, I'm assuming that if you grew up here, you're kind of like me and maybe you're like this imaginary 65-year-old man and maybe you have been religious and devout and you consider yourself a good person. But the gospel the gospel's about a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's not about knowing his name and then trying to do good things. It's about him coming into your heart. It's about a day when you remember I sat down with Jesus and I signed my life over to him. And he is the owner and the master. I remember that day. Listen, if you're here today and you can't remember that day, well, then the odds are your name is still the name on the bottom of the ownership, the title deed of your life. Listen, if you don't want that to be the case, and maybe God's pierced your heart this morning the way he did in Acts chapter 2. Their hearts were pierced and they said, what do I have to do? And all you're needing this morning is to be told, here's what you need to do. You need to, by prayer and by faith, so to speak, take out that deed of your life. Sign it over to him. Let him put his signature at the bottom of your life and declare this morning, Jesus Christ, you are my Lord. I put my trust and my hope in you. 
Every day, every moment. I don't even want five minutes in the future. I want you to have it all. I will follow you all the days of my life. Listen, if you want to do that this morning, you do it right now. Do it right now with God. Tell God that. God, what that guy just said, I want to do that. I want to know for the rest of my life, my life belongs to you. I'm yours. And I'll do everything I understand to do to follow you and to grow and trust you. If you speak those words by faith, and that's really what you mean this morning, then an amazing thing just happened. The Holy Spirit has come to your life. Forgiveness has come to your life. God has taken up his residence in your life. Begin to look for him to do amazing things, changing you, affecting you. Lord, for all who are here who have known you for many years, and yet you have filled our minds with categories of discomfort that we are avoiding. Lord, would you invade that discomfort? Would you let us know? And would you inform our hearts, we don't want to stay in what's comfortable for us anymore. God, we want to move out. We want, we want the life you meant us to live. God, we want to, we want to experience the power and the presence of your kingdom in our midst daily, in our homes, in our relationships with our children, in our marriages and friendships, in times of fellowship and in evangelism and reaching out and touching the community that we're a part of. God, we want it all. We want the life you meant for us to live. So God, give us the grace that abounds in courage to take the time to pass through the valley of discomfort, whatever it is for us, that we might emerge into the abundance of life you have promised to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You guys have an awesome, awesome week this week.